Hey all, so I wanted to start off with a little bit of a story this week that was told by Sebastian Roundtree uh, at the Arcazanti Convergence Festival that I was at this weekend. Uh, it's a really interesting story that I think puts a lot of things in context about the way that we should consider things as we move forward. So here's his take on the origin of the knowledge of good and evil. Our characters are names you may be familiar with, Adam and Eve, but they're not the first two people to walk the earth. Instead, imagine yourself in an early hominid community where as a group of maybe 100 to 200 humans, you travel through land where you recognize the fruits and the animals and you work together to feed yourselves. This is the place where our story begins. There is a forest near our collective village and it is forbidden to go there. This is not because there are laws amongst our people. Instead, there is a great secret truth we know about this forest. When men dare to hunt in this forest, they are found alone, turned to statues. This is a very mysterious happening. The elders do not quite understand it, but fortunately, we have priestesses among us who know the songs of the earth. And when they gather in a circle around one of these found statues through their song, those men are made back to flesh and we are able to bring them back to us <laughs> and live with them again. Now they tell strange stories. They tell of the most beautiful woman whose hair is made of snakes. A very mysterious thing. Many men enjoy the idea of moving into the forest and taking this most beautiful woman as a lover. But alas, none succeeded. Indeed, all who traveled into the forest were, what were originally found, <laughs> or eventually found as statues. That is until a woman, one of the mightiest of the priestesses, one of the oldest, they say her name was Lilith, decided to go into the forest. And when she ventured into the forbidden woods, she did not dare to spy the beauty of this woman with snakes for hair. Instead, when she found her, she merely listened. And this figure, Medusa, known to us, had secrets to share with Lilith and bid Lilith that she should follow her. And deep into the forest, she took her until they found the tree of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. It is known to the gods that knowledge of good and evil would be necessary to create a planet for conscious beings, but it is difficult to teach these things. And so instead of an apple, perhaps you might think of the fruit of the tree as a mushroom. Just to uh, pitch day trippers before we get into the, the climax of the story, uh, since they are called day trippers, you know, I thought that it would be helpful to 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 connect us uh, to to the psychedelic experience. You know, there's this concept um, called the stoned ape theory. I'm not sure if everyone's familiar. Uh, 
Uh, it's uh, speaker Terence McKenna who talks about responsible ways to use psilocybin mushrooms. Uh, his idea is that early hominid groups may have used mushrooms without really realizing it, that it was a natural part of their diet, and that perhaps it has something to do with where consciousness evolved. So it's interesting that one of the most important and well-known myths amongst Western culture does have a, a fruit that seems to change the way that consciousness expresses itself. But back to our story. So Lilith was taken to the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And she heard what Medusa had to say, the long warning that Medusa gave as Lilith stood eyes to the ground. And without thought for how it would affect her community, she did bite the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And although she never returned to them, she was found to be known as the first witch of humanity who learned the ways of all the plants and animals around the world and taught them to her great grand nieces and nephews as they populated the world. But our story rests on a young woman known as Eve. She too was a priestess. And she heard that Lilith had disappeared and wondered where her friend had wandered off to. And so she too went into the forest. And when she encountered the terrible beauty of Medusa, she too kept her eyes to the ground and listened to the secrets that Medusa had to share. And she followed her in the dark of the night to the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. But she did not decide to bite the fruit, not yet. Instead, she went back to her village, for there was a man she had her eye on. Now, in this time, there was no marriage. In fact, mostly they had orgies. <laughs> no lie. But if a, particularly, if a particularly wise woman decided there was a man she was interested in having a child with, she would lead him into the forest at night. And alone together, she could be sure who fathered her son. So Eve implied a similar proposal to Adam and seduced him into following her into the forest. But instead of giving him what he thought they were going to do, she had a trick from a spider, Arachnia. Eve had learned the art of weaving. And so with a silk spun scarf, she wrapped the eyes of her lover, knowing that even though he was a virtuous man, he would not be able to withstand the temptation to spy the beauty of Medusa. And so, promising her lover that he could trust her, she brought him into the forbidden forest to where Medusa would wander. And with her eyes to the ground, she followed Medusa, whispering sweet nothings to Adam. But before they came to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, she had him sit. You see, Adam was becoming quite anxious. You know, there are certain chemical uh, procedures that begin in the male body when you're anticipating certain experiences. And sometimes that can also be accompanied with frustration. And Eve did not, you know, want to offend Medusa. So 
while they were close to the path to the tree, she had Adam lay down and she invented the first blowjob in order to satiate him so that he would fall into slumber while she went on. A brilliant woman, Eve. And so Eve went to the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And she heard the warning that Medusa had to say. Medusa said to her that only one who bites the fruit with virtue will be able to withhold good in their heart, even with knowledge of evil. And that the test of following Medusa was the only test known to the gods to see if a mortal hominid had virtue. But still, Eve did not want to be alone in her knowledge. She wanted the father of her children to have that knowledge as well. And so she took the fruit, and after biting it, she was sure that she was right. And she brought it to her lover, now awakening to her sweet touch alone in the forest. She took her, his blindfold off and offered him the fruit. And as he bit that sacred fruit, the destiny of all humankind was written. We have to wonder, was Adam one who was worthy of virtue? We are all descended from him. Eve may have had it, but did he? I hope so. I believe so. But it does seem that uh, there's some truth to the warning that Medusa gave because it does seem like there are some bad people out there. But the responsibility of knowledge of good and evil is something I trust to us. So thank you for listening to my myth. Thank you. Hey y'all, this is Chris Roth here with Bushido Squirrel with your weekly knock activism wrap-up. Today we're going to be talking about the Saddle Ridge Fire, PG&E being shitty about their bankruptcy, Jackie Lacey protests going strong at two years in, a follow-up to the random, definitely not racial profiling stops that we discussed last week through the LAPD, uh, an uptick in horrifying crimes against our unhoused neighbors, and we'll finish things off on a lighter note with a return to the reading series with Bushido that we haven't had in a while now. How's it going, Bushido? Uh, it's going pretty well. I spent last weekend uh, out at this place up in Arizona. It's like an hour north of Phoenix called Arcasanti, and it's kind okay. of an urban experiment sort of space. It's like from the 1970s, they built this sort of sustainable-ish community, this Italian architect huh. whose name escapes me, but it's sort of like an art outpost. Uh, they hold a lot of workshops. They do a lot of stuff like that. So they hold a, a yearly festival called Convergence. So it was kind of like a very small sober burning man huh. um but it was fun and like it was like it was kind of climate change themed because like that's the big thing and there's a lot of like uh workshops talking about like permaculture climate change a lot of really interesting kind of art shows um the quote the story i had at the beginning is a storyteller who told this very interesting story that i felt like i wanted to share with y'all but it was pretty fun so if you do find yourself in arizona and you're looking for an interesting day trip uh to check out some art to kind of like see what's happening in the world of 
not really off-grid, but more like sustainable, regenerative living, definitely check out Arcasanti. Um, it's, you know, like I said, not very far away from Phoenix. It's a nice little drive. Um, they've got some really cool art installations. Um, and I met a lot of really cool people who are like interested in getting more involved. And people are finally beginning to see like, we need to be rearranging the way in which we like relate to the environment and how we choose where we're living and how we live out there in the world. And I think there's a lot That's of definitely you know valid criticisms about the way that like Arcasanti works because it's not completely off grid, but it's a lot more sustainable than like most of your urban centers. So I definitely had a lot of fun at it. Um, I would definitely, if you want to check it out next year, it's like pretty cheap for the weekend. It's like a hundred bucks or something. Uh, pretty nice camping and uh, also really close to like Flagstaff and pretty close to the Grand Canyon. So you can go do all the other like fun Arizona stuff, which, you know, I'm now realizing that most of the like tourist attractions in Arizona are just large holes in the ground, like <laughs> Meteor Crater and like the Grand Canyon. Um I'm not sure what that says about us, but, you know, <laughs> how's your week been going so far, Chris? Uh, things have been pretty crazy here. Uh, I mean, we had the the smoke from the fire was creating this looming cloud over the city. Uh, it definitely, as soon as I walked out of my uh, my apartment and into the hallway, I, I it smelled like a campfire in inside the hallway of my building in, in the middle of downtown. Uh, Always so creepy. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things, like, you, you really... I mean, uh, I, I keep thinking back to like LA podcast. They were talking about how Scott Frazier was saying his way of knowing that it's uh, the fall is that the Dodgers lose in an upset. And uh, then suddenly your eyes are watering. You're feeling really sick and congested. And you go, oh, wait, it's because everything is on fire once again. And uh, yeah, so that, that's been the the bulk of what's going on down here. In LA, not the bulk, but the the over uh, the the presence that hangs over us all, looming against the backdrop of everything else that's happening in the city, is that the uh, the hills are burning again. Yeah, and I, as as we have to talk about, like every year, it seems like around this time, because the biggest fires start in October and November. Uh, if you are looking to do something nice for your unhoused neighbors or something like to help N95 them survive this period masks. of time. N90 masks, uh, N95 masks, uh, N90, or sorry, N100 masks, oh. or also P90, P95, P100. They're all pretty much the same-ish. I mean, P90 will work for most people who don't have respiratory issues. Depending on how close you are to the fire, you may want to step it up to a P95 mask. Uh, the other thing to keep in mind is that those masks are only good for about four to six hours. So, yeah. like, if you go out and buy yourself a four-pack of those masks, that's only about two days' worth of masks when, like, fire conditions are really bad. So keep that in mind. These things are disposable. They do not last forever. Yep. And wearing one of these masks uh, past the time that um, they've outlived their usefulness or past their, like, kind of use-by mm -hmm. uh, is actually really bad for you because now you're just breathing in more particulate matter that's trapped in the filters. It's not doing its job. It's actually sending that stuff directly into your lungs. So it can be uh, kind of a pain in the butt to try and uh, uh, keep your respiratory health up during this time of year. Uh, but let's go ahead and talk about the Saddle Ridge Fire. And this For was sure. a fire that started up around the Angeles National Forest, uh, caused the evacuation of Granada Hills, of Silmar, of Porter Ranch, um, destroyed a small number of structures, nothing too huge, uh, but did scorch a couple thousand acres uh, 
including our favorite place in the the county at this point, which is Aliso Canyon, which we'll talk about a little bit towards the end of the story. But let's kind of go through the uh, the numbers and talk about uh, now that the Saddle Ridge fire is almost contained, the amount of damage it did do. Yeah, so the Saddle Ridge fire fire was uh, as of the time that we're recording this fifty six percent contained. So that's Thursday morning. Uh, this is marks the now two and a half ish days in a row that the firefighters have been managing to halt all of the expansion of the blaze. So it's not getting any bigger, but it's still not you know fully contained, so that's good news. Uh, the burn area is around 13 square miles, just shy of 8,400 acres, which is a huge amount of space. So a quick... Yeah, and it, it destroyed something like 18 properties, or yeah. sorry, 18... Yeah, structures. it destroyed 18 structures, and I think damaged like 88 structures, which also, is still a decent amount of damage, but not as destructive as some of these fires have been in the past. Like the Silmar fire a couple of years ago definitely burned through hundreds of structures before they got it contained. Yeah, there was a lot of reporting about, um, I believe it was the Frito-Lays plant up in the Silmar area where the trucks were uh, being caught in the blaze. So there's been a lot of destruction surrounding this, and it, it's uh, there was a, a lot of evacuations. Actually, I, I, I do some uh, volunteer work with a group called Guide Dogs of America, and their campus is located up in Silmar. So they actually ended up ac- evacuating uh, all of the dogs that they have up there that were doing their training um, because the air quality was so poor and they were worried about the potential of a fire uh, sweeping into the area. So they ended up evacuating uh, hundreds of dogs that are in training to be, or over 100 dogs that are in training to become uh, seeing eye dogs. And they uh, all got returned to uh, either the people who had fostered them in the first place or other volunteers uh, to take care of those dogs for a couple of days while uh, firefighters were working to put to put the blaze, uh, at least get the control over it so it's not threatening somewhere anymore. Um, and a, a yeah. quick note, uh, correcting ourselves from what we were talking about last week, because in the confusion surrounding the fires and PG&E and the power shutoffs and all of that, we uh, accidentally were conflating two, uh, two different uh, deaths that occurred in those incidences. Uh, so the death that we were talking about last week that was related to oxygen uh, cutoff, that was actually um, a, a victim who died 12 minutes after PG&E shut off his power because he was reliant on an oxygen supply at home and it was interrupted by yeah. that power cut. There was... So that was up in uh, Northern California. that was up in NorCal, yes. So there was also a death that did happen down here related to the these fire in Saddle Ridge, um, but that was actually a, a man who died of a heart attack uh, that he suffered while trying to evacuate or uh, shortly after being notified that he needed to evacuate when you know you're, you're put, your body is suddenly put under this extreme stress of, oh my God, I'm going to lose everything as this fire rampages through my neighborhood. Uh, and that's one thing that we do have to say, like we're kind of lucky with where this fire happened uh, because there were m- multiple evacuation routes. Yes. Like one of the things that happened in Paradise oh, yeah, yeah. is there was only one way in or out of that town and, and it was cut off by fire. fire like videos. even though this fire jumped the five, yeah. which is saying a lot, you know, like the five freeway is freaking huge and the fire just jumped it like it was nothing. Even though that happened, there were multiple ways to get out of the danger area. And as we're seeing these larger uh, urban interface wildfires, uh, it's it's scary in more remote places where you don't have like four freeways coming together, where you don't have a back way around the mountain, where you're stuck on like smaller highways and state routes to try and get out. So this is kind of something to be thinking about as we develop is like, what's our escape plan? Because in a lot of communities, there isn't a good one. Yeah, no, that's, that is a very 
a, a fundamental consideration that needs to be taken into account whenever we're talking about further expansion of, uh, of civilization, as it were, into these wilderness areas. Like we are encroaching on the habitats of, of wildlife and these these natural areas that we should be protecting, and instead we're expanding out and building suburban tract homes uh, into this space that is not suitable for people to be living in. It is a, an area uh, up and down the state uh, in these canyons. Uh, I was actually like reading an article this morning uh, back from 2015 where they were like, oh, hey, we're about to start expanding uh, more home construction in these in these fire routes, known fire routes in the canyons down in Orange County, because the courts have said that that's something that you're just totally fine doing. So it's well, and it, it's it's places like Tejon Ranch yeah, exactly. and like these other big massive developments that they're planning, and there's not really a lot of thought what you, for can, yeah. what's going to happen in our climate crisis future and whether that's a good place to be. It's also one where you know, like from the the door knocking I did up around like Porter Ranch, a lot of people are moving out to Porter Ranch and like the farther stretches like of northern uh, kind of LA County, like Lancaster and Palmdale and, you know, the, the county border area is they can afford to buy property out there and they can afford to live out there. You know, the, the housing crisis is driving not just an affordability crisis, but also like this life-threatening climate crisis yep. that we're entering into. If people are pushed out to the borders of where our, our urban environments are to the places where wildfires are more likely to happen, we're going to see more dangerous fires that are threatening more people. And that's something that doesn't get talked about a lot because we're still in in this mindset of like success in our economy is owning your own single family detached home. Yeah. And on top of that, by pushing these people out to these, uh, you know, the further stretches of the urban environment and having them need to commute further and further to get to their jobs, this is a self-enforcing cycle because that then creates more carbon to pump into the atmosphere because they're having to drive further and sit in more traffic. And then that makes the situation worse for those fires, which then pose more of a threat to those, those that, that uh, further uh, exurban uh, expansion into these wilderness zones. So it's uh, <laughs> all of these things are related and it is extremely bad that we are, are, are not considering these kind of impacts when we start talking about this expansion into these areas that really, honestly, we need to be discussing like rewilding of so much area yeah. across this country and across the planet. And it, like, that's the only way that we're going to be able to sur survive long term is by giving back a lot of this space to nature. And, you know, do the best form of carbon sequestration that there is, is trees like trees and wetlands like that's well, what you need to be doing is planting more trees and not burning carbon well and also to like give a shout out to like the dream of a green new deal is it's not just about you know creating new oh yeah for um, sure. like green space it's also about like the stewardship of that like one reason yosemite was such a nice like wilderness space was because the tribes that lived there understood how to steward the land and how to keep like massive wildfires in check and when you know America, when the federal government took over like Yosemite and stuff and stopped doing that stewardship, that's when you got the massive explosion and undergrowth that led to these massive wildfires. And so you know, imagine a future in which like not only are we greening America, but then like you can have a sustainable living by being a steward to the land. Like not only are you making the land healthier, but you can also feed yourself. And like it's not seen as, as some very rarefied position where we just don't have the amount of manpower or resources to take care of our, you know, abundant natural resources. I'm just like, 
bubbling over with optimism yeah. that like we could actually do I that know. because like that's the future we can build that solves so many of these problems and like it's just in one fell swoop <laughs> like people have a job we get some trees the squirrels have a place to live yeah. like all in all it's just a win-win for everyone <sighs> yeah exactly so uh <laughs> now that we've gone on that back to the that, that little tangent of uh utopian visions for the future <sighs> All right. So there is also back to our dystopia, <laughs> back to dystopia. So uh, surprise, surprise, there is reporting that's floating around in the L.A. Times and elsewhere that uh, there is suspicion that a SoCal Edison transmission line may have been the trigger of this blaze up in Saddle Ridge. Uh, this is, again, something that we're seeing uh, over and over happening here is it is. Uh, power transmission lines during windy, dry conditions that are sparking these fires because the lines start swaying back and forth. They, uh, you know, touch each other or touch a tree limb or whatever else, send a cascade of sparks down onto this dry brush that is accumulated around the base of the power lines and it sparks a fire and then it's, you know, off to the races from there. Uh, One of the troubling things that I've heard about this is that uh, SoCal Edison doesn't even, you know, provide power in the area where this fire was sparked, it is just passing through. And so this is like, <laughs> it's a high power lot transmission line that is going across this area that is a, 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 you know, an extreme fire risk. And it's not even benefiting the community that it's endangering. It's just purely there because we have not thought about how to properly regulate these utilities in this state in a very long time. Um, another troubling yep. issue that cropped up was there was a hot spot uh, in what ABC7 was referring to as a hole in a hillside within the Aliso Canyon gas storage facility. We've talked about this before. We'll keep talking about it seemingly every freaking week until uh, they shut it down. Uh, that same facility was also the source of, of course, the largest methane leak in U.S. history back in 2015, and that is why we keep talking about it. It is a huge risk to the neighborhood in Porter Ranch and all of the community up in the, that part of the valley uh, because it's just it, it, it was pumping incredible amounts of toxic chemicals into the uh, atmosphere and poisoning people and killing pets, and it's just horrifying that it still yeah. exists in the, in the way that it was, but it was right in the path of the fire and the fire was burning across this area. And so there was this hot spot that people were freaking out, understandably so, that, well, why is the soil burning in the Aliso Canyon gas storage facility? Um, well, and also to, to point out the uh, fourth anniversary of that yes. leak is coming up next week. Uh, we'll talk about it at the end because there's going to be a press conference and rally. But like, there was also there was a video I saw, and I'll I'll put the link in the description of the show. Uh, but it was somebody at the Ralphs, and this is the Ralphs where uh, I, we've used as like kind of a base for our door knocking operations and like a place to grab waters and like snacks before we go out out yeah. uh, you know knocking doors in that neighborhood. And there were flames coming out of the sewers, like oh, out yeah. of the the water runoffs, and like under like somehow the fire was underneath Porter Ranch, and flames were literally shooting out of like the drainage uh like cut throughs and everything and it was really freaky and not something that you're used to no. seeing and uh there's a man very calmly just kind of narrating it and standing there in the middle of Porter Ranch like a parking lot just being like and now the flames are shooting up out of the ground so never seen that one before and you're like dude why aren't you running <laughs> yeah that's that's uh horrifying um, so yeah, ABC seven also managed to get a quote from, uh, Kenichi Haskett, who is a Los Angeles County fire section chief saying, quote, 
as to how that started, this is talking about the, uh, the hotspot at the Aliso Canyon gas storage facility. Quote, until those samples come back, uh, until we get further information, we can't assume anything. Other than right now, when, when we did a, the flare gun readings, there wasn't any sign of gaseous substances coming out of the air, end quote. So they're putting this down to it's not a gas leak. It is just uh, something else combustible. Just magic fire. On a just gas storage facility. Just magic fire on the, yeah, <laughs> just, it just happens. Fire just happens. Yeah. Just, you know, there's no physical explanation for it. It just The you ground know, is just, just burning. Fire. It's just the way that it burns in a gas storage facility. It just, it just burns. You know, no, 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 no connection there. Uh, SoCal Gas. I laugh, but I also I cry. I know, right? So SoCal Gas also told reporters that the situation apparently does not pose any risk to the public safety at this point and that there have been no impact to operations at the facility, aside from, you know, uh, them having to shut it down and run because the entire thing was on fire. So, yeah, and evacuate the entire neighborhood yeah. because of like a climate crisis-driven wildfire. But yeah, no, yeah, we didn't uh, didn't impact our operations. Yeah, no, it, it's it's uh, everything uh, everything's perfectly normal. Nothing to see here. Move along. Yeah, and also like, let's not forget, like Gavin Newsom said, he was going to shut this down. Uh, Eric Garcetti has been completely mealy-mouthed on what he wants to do with. Uh, with uh, Aliso Canyon as I stumble over my own tongue. Uh, the L.A. City Council has been, like, pretty weak sauce on what they want to do with it. Like, no one thinks that having Aliso Canyon here is, like, the best of all possible worlds or the best way to, like, organize this kind of storage of, like, fairly dangerous and volatile gas and gas that is 20 times um, more potent as a greenhouse gas than CO2. Um, but nobody will, like, shut it down. And instead, we just have this mountain of gas that's not being used. It's not going into the pipes. It's not being used to, like, uh, supply homes with heat or cooking gas. It's literally just a stagnant mountain of gas that nobody's doing anything yeah. with, but they won't just effing shut it down. Like, it is just a sign of such a broken bureaucracy at the city, county, and state level. And they could just immediately fix this and begin pumping that gas out and doing something else useful with it. Yeah. Um, at least until we, you know, finally come around to the whole, like, keep it in the ground mentality. I mean, this is one of those places uh, where we which, don't want to keep it in this particular section of the ground because it doesn't Well, we don't stay. want to drill it to begin yeah, with. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But one of the things that we've we've discussed about this before, and it's one of those shocking things that I, I, I every time I remember it, it, it just makes me shake my head is like we don't even use the gas that's stored here to like power our gas turbines in LA. It is literally just a storage facility for dealing with the ebbs and flows of the market. So we're yep. it's it's a cost saving mechanism that is endangering tens of thousands of people's lives on a daily basis. And it's all just so that SoCal gas can save some money. Like this is totally unacceptable and it needs to go away. So let's uh, let's move on to something else that needs to be kept in the ground, and that is PG&E power lines, yeah, which do. a decade ago they had the chance to do that, and they were like, no, we'd rather pay some bonuses to our executives yep. than like do the safe thing. So uh, PG&E had this massive shutoff up in Northern California. Uh, there haven't been any wildfires up there, so like maybe, maybe that was a good thing. It's kind of you know it's kind of hard to tell with causality in this place, but it definitely pissed everyone off. Oh yeah, so there there are. Uh, Threats of uh, lawsuits that are being brought. Uh, Gavin Newsom has been talking about this. There's, it's been causing an incredible amount of uh, confusion. 
tons of businesses had to shut down. Restaurants were throwing out food. People, you know, there was the guy that the, that unfortunately, you know, suffered. Uh, he died because he got his oxygen cut off. Uh, it, it's been an incredible impact on the local communities that have been uh, that that had their power shut off. And as we mentioned last week, the pattern for which neighborhoods were being impacted by this. Uh, really did fall disproportionately on poor and working class neighborhoods rather than on the more affluent sections of the city. And yeah, I was really surprised when I saw that like Facebook and Twitter and Salesforce and really? all of the you places where like their employees <laughs> live and work, like they weren't impacted. Yeah. Weird. Yeah, I wonder ironic. whose idea that uh-huh. was. Um, I mean, to be fair, it, it's it the the power lines in question that are more likely to spark this stuff uh, tend to be in more rural areas where there are more, you know, open transmission lines that are, are in areas that are, are uh, just covered with more of the kind of scrub that is the the potential uh, tinder situation for these kind of fires. And that does tend to be in more of the uh, exurban and rural communities, which do tend to be poorer. But it's still one of those things pointing out just how disproportionate the impact of these kinds of events and this kind of complete, uh, frankly, malpractice and negligence by PG&E really comes into play. Like they are the only reason why they had to shut this stuff down is because they chose years and years ago not to bury the transmission cables uh, that are the the culprits here, the the suspected culprits here, uh, when they had the opportunity. And they are now, as a result of all of this, there, you know, those 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 fires that were sparked in 2017 and 2018 that were tied back to PG&E equipment. They're looking at something like 30 billion dollars in liabilities that are coming out of those those uh, fires and the insurance claims and the lawsuits associated with them. And now they're you know stacking on more billions of dollars in uh, you know lost economic output due to this kind of a shutdown. So we're coming up on a situation where there is more and more evidence that PG&E in its current format simply cannot, there's no rational justification for why they continue to exist as they currently do. And something needs to be done about that. And one of the things that was uh, offered as a solution to this was that the city of San Francisco made an offer to PG&E to buy up a chunk of uh, basically all of the PG&E infrastructure that exists within the city limits. And uh, according to reporting from Bloomberg, uh, they they actually sent, Mayor London Breed sent a letter to PG&E uh, offering them $2.5 billion to municipalize and just take over the uh, all of the infrastructure that PG&E has, which, of course, remember, they are going through bankruptcy right now, uh, it would take over that infrastructure and then the city would operate it as a municipalized, I can say that, I promise, a municipalized uh, utility within the bounds of San Francisco. In an October 7th letter to San Francisco Mayor London Breed, PG&E Chief Executive Officer Bill Johnson said that the offer dramatically undervalued the assets in question and was therefore unacceptable. Quote, we cannot accept your offer, Johnson said in the letter. If we ever do consider such sales, we have a duty to obtain the highest and best value for these assets, end quote. And that's that's what it is, folks. That's the problem, is yep. that they are more concerned about the welfare of their shareholders 
than the welfare of the people who live in the state whose lives are being threatened by these fires and shutoffs. But here's the thing I want to point out, because, like, you know, I don't want to discount the villainy of the people who run PG&E, but I do want to point out, like, it's not just, like, Captain Planet-level villainy, right? Like, these aren't people who want to take an oil tanker and crash it into a beach full of seals to teach the seals a lesson in complacency. They are legally obligated to seek the best value for their shareholders. Like, if they sell their assets for less than the shareholders think they are worth, they can be sued for corporate malfeasance. Burning down a city like Paradise is not corporate malfeasance. Selling your assets for too little is corporate malfeasance that can get you sued by the shareholders. And there's a better chance that the shareholders are going to win than PG&E is going to have to face a lawsuit from people in paradise. Like, the people who lost everything in paradise are having to settle from, for some bullshit negotiation that the state went ahead and, like, entered into with PG&E and the insurance companies to make sure that the people of paradise get screwed. Meanwhile, the shareholders get taken care of. Like, this isn't just, like, PG&E is run by uniquely evil individuals. Like, I'm sure they're, they're perfectly nice people. Wait, you wait. know, I'm sure they've got families and stuff. Are you saying that this is a stuff. systemic issue? Oh my God, <laughs> systems change, not climate change. This is what we're talking about. Like, this is literally where we're Ugh. at. Like, there's a lot more that has to be done than just like, you know, selling off PG&E's assets. We literally have to like do away with this form of capitalist organization of our society or we're just going to keep facing this problem. Like, the idea that the point of a business is to extract as much value as quickly as possible is what's literally killing us. And that is so ingrained in the DNA of our society that the person who wrote this letter, or the, you know, Johnson when he wrote this letter, is making a perfectly rational, valid, and defensible argument yep. as far as the law is concerned. And like, that's the problem. Like, that's why the Dem debate really kind of like pissed me off when people were like, I have no problem with capitalism. I'm like, then you're obviously not getting screwed by. Yeah, it. you're not paying attention. Like that's if you don't have a problem with capitalism and the way that society is working right now, you're not paying attention. This Well, they they are paying attention though. They're just paying attention to their quarterly returns. Oh. And as long as those quarterly returns yeah. are printed in black ink <laughs> and not red ink, they're happy. <laughs> yeah, with that kind of a narrow focus, it's understandable how they might be able to just completely ignore the fact that there are people suffering and dying because capitalism is broken. Um, yeah, yep. so it, it's, I mean, I, I would love to see the state come in and be like, well, if you were, you know, if you can't sell these things off at a quote unquote loss, because uh, even though you don't have effectively, like these, these assets are the only way that you can get yourself out of bankruptcy. Well, why don't we just seize them? Why doesn't the state just come Stairs in an eminent, domain. an eminent domain that shit and turn it into, you know, make all of it public and just be like, all right, sorry, shareholders, y'all didn't hold your board to account and let them get away with this for so long. You let them pay out these bonuses. You didn't make them do the proper types of maintenance that's required to protect our cities and, you know, uh, like po rural populations across this state. Like, yeah, you, you, you lose. Sorry. Game over. Now it's the public. Yep. <sighs> and PG&E is still facing some massive oh, liabilities yeah. from this. Like they're looking at like $30 billion in liabilities from the fires in 2017 and 2018. And what amazes me about that is California's annual budget is $40 billion. So in like about a month, you know, you figure these fires were super devastating for about a week to two weeks and they were all contained within about a month to two months. But like in less than a year, PG&E managed to destroy 
almost as much money as California estate has to spend every year. And we're like the largest, most populous state in the nation and one of the wealthiest. Like we have one of the largest budgets, I think, outside of uh, maybe the state of New York. I think our budget is, yeah. is slightly smaller, but it's like that's an insane level of economic destruction that PG&E has been able to rot and uh, none of their shareholders are losing a red cent over it. Like, it's just... Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll have to see what yeah, happens yeah, out I of those yeah, I don't even know how to yeah, make, like, coherent noise no. about that. It's just rage. Yep. It's, I mean, it's fundamentally broken. And uh, it's yep. just... Yeah. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> so we'll be, it'll be interesting to see what happens there. One of the fun things that's also happening is a lot of the survivors of the Paradise Fire are learning about the bureaucratic tricks that are being used against them to stop them from being able to collect their full insurance payouts, from being able to collect what they need, because uh, the insurance companies are like, hey, you have to be able to account for the value of everything you lost. And people are like, shit, you know, when I had seven minutes to evacuate my home, I didn't think to grab every single document in my house that said how much all my stuff was worth. You know, I was a little bit more focused on saving my life and the life of my family. Um, so I didn't grab yeah. all of my, like, receipts. Yep. And now that's being used as a way to, like, simply screw people who lost everything through no fault of their own. So uh, this is going to be a continually stupidly dystopian story that we will keep covering for you. Um, but now let's move on to everyone's least favorite segment. Cops, y'all. So let's start off with our district attorney, Jackie Lacey, because uh, she has a big anniversary coming up, right? Yes, she does. So this uh, coming Wednesday, the 23rd of October, marks the two-year anniversary uh, of weekly protests that are held in front of the Hall of Justice in downtown Los Angeles. Uh, black Lives Matter and uh, our, their allies, and you know, white people for black lives, DSA, Ground Game LA, uh, Baji, Coco, all these different groups, LA Voice, have all been participants in these uh, weekly vigils. And they've been doing this now for two whole years. Like, this is incredible that they've been able to keep this up week after week after week. You know, sometimes it changes which day it is because there are, are, are court situations relating to, uh, you know, the police that are, are accountable, are not being held accountable, rather, uh, for these uh, gross acts of state violence that have, you know, had an incredible impact and devastated the lives of people uh, like, you know, the family of Ryan Twyman, uh, Paul Rea, Anthony Vargas, all of these folks who have had their loved ones taken from them by either the LAPD or the sheriff's deputies. The person at the center of all of this is LA County District Attorney Jackie Lacey because she and her office are, at the end of the day, the ones who get to make the determination as to whether or not there are going to be criminal prosecutions of these officers relating to these acts of state violence. And we're talking about, again, with the instance of, like, Ryan Twyman, two sheriff's deputies sneaking up on a car, violating his Fourth Amendment rights by, you know, opening the back door of the car, which, you know, you can't do, and then unloading 34 rounds into his car and effectively executing him. Like this, this weekly protest is held in front of the Hall of Justice to remind Jackie Lacey that people are paying attention, and it's been going on for two whole years. So this Wednesday, if you are in any way able to do so, please, please, please come out and join in the protest in front of the Hall of Justice. They are out there uh, every Wednesday from 4 to 6, uh, the address is 211 West Temple 
It's in downtown Los Angeles. Uh, there's some parking near, pretty nearby over in Little Tokyo. Uh, over, uh, so I believe it's on the corner of uh, First and Judge Donaliso Street. There's a parking garage that's actually built into the ground, so you don't see it. Uh, there's like a little park, concrete park above <laughs> with some benches. And then there's a parking structure down below. That's the most convenient place to park if, you could, yep. if you're not going to be taking transit. Uh, but yeah, so this this Wednesday is the two-year anniversary. Uh, it's a big event. It's a big milestone. Uh, Jackie Lacey's got to go. We've got to get somebody in there that is actually going to be able to hold the police officers accountable for their actions when they are you know, going in guns blazing with little thought for the you know, the impact that these actions are going to have on the lives of Angelinos. Like it's, she's been grossly negligent. There have been hundreds of police shootings or officer involved shootings, whether it's LAPD or Sheriff's department, doesn't matter. There have been hundreds of them. Was it like four or 500 of them at this point since Uh, more than 500 since she's taken office. Since she came into office, more than 500 people have been shot by law enforcement officers in LA County and she has prosecuted, I think now it's two, two, is that it? Well, I, no, there's only one. There's the one sheriff's deputy who still has yet to go to trial oh, over yeah. the shooting at the gas station. Yeah, oh, that's right. Um, there's others, some, some potential charges, yeah. maybe. Uh, there's also been some talk about the Costco shooting. Uh, if but that's that not even, LAPD officer, since he is... But that doesn't, that, well, the, that the, falls the question into is, the, the DA there... Uh, is in Riverside County, and they've chosen yeah, not to pursue but it, it. because but. he's in L.A. Yeah, but because he's LAPD, there might be some disciplinary yeah, action happening in L.A. County. It but it's anything to do with. Yeah, it's ah. it's it's no one's know, being point, held to like, account. That's the point. A, this is all fucked exactly. up. Being a cop in L.A. Uh, basically ensures that you can get away with literal murder and uh, no one's going to stop you and you'll get a paid vacation. Uh, and maybe if they find some other reason to fire you, they will, like the um, uh, shooting on the Venice boardwalk where, you know, even though uh, Chief Charlie Beck was like, prosecute this guy, they didn't. And then it turned out that he was also a domestic abuser. So he was fired by LAPD for being a domestic abuser and was uh, tried in Huntington Beach for his crimes down there but never faced any sort of uh, criminal sanction up here in L.A. for murdering someone on the boardwalk. Like, it, these stories just over and over and over again uh, just keep coming out. Um, and it's, you know, if you also want to get more involved with this, uh, I know you've been working with the ACLU yeah. um, on stuff around sheriff's accountability. Like, you know, LAPD is one arm of this. The district attorney's office is another arm of this. The third arm of this is the L.A. County Sheriff's Office, which is one of the largest law enforcement bureaus in the entire nation. Uh, it has, runs one of the largest prison populations in the world and has one of the most massive budgets in the state of California. Um, so all of this we'll be talking about as we get into this a lot more. But one easy thing you can do and one thing that will be really, really impactful, show up next Wednesday, the 23rd, 4 to 6 p.m. at the Hall of Injustice, 4 to 6. Uh, it's going to be a really good event. It's a really trying and like emotionally hard yeah. thing to show up for and to hold that space, but it's really, really worth it, especially when you're able to bring some comfort and some solidarity to families that have lost so much uh, to the split-second decisions of police officers and families whose lives have been torn apart by losing their loved ones and it's something that like you know you you have a hard time imagining how much that hurts touching back on what you mentioned just a minute ago about the sheriff's accountability there will be an event taking place 
at the same location as the uh, the BLM actions every week uh, on the 30th. We're going to be starting at 3 p.m. Uh, it's going to be piggybacking off of what BLM is doing because BLM is part of that coalition. Uh, but we'll be giving you more information about that next week when we record. So on the 30th, mark your calendars starting at 3 p.m., uh, same place as before, 211 West Temple. Uh, it's going to be big, and this is we're trying to you know take things up a step and really demand actual accountability from uh, if if. DLAC isn't going to do it. We need to be able to find other mechanisms that we can lean on to actually try to uh, change the power structures within the county and uh, start protecting people who actually live here because it is the way things are going right now is completely untenable and we, we need justice and we're not getting it from our current power structures. True. Now, something that has been changed uh, pretty recently and Very a pretty recently. quick turnaround <laughs> yeah. for the LAPD, yeah, was the end to uh, their random stops, which, you know, I really like this idea that a police officer can do such a thing as a random stop. Like, the cops are sitting there in every car that drives by. They just, like, roll a D20 <laughs> to see whether they stop the car or not, um, rather than just, like, relying on, you know, so bald-faced insane. racism to decide uh. who they're stopping. Uh, but apparently they're, they're going to no longer be doing these, uh, which is a little bit of debate because apparently after this L.A. Times article came out, there were a lot of very credible reports out of South L.A. that LAPD had ramped up the rate at which they were stopping motorists and searching them, um, perhaps in a retaliatory manner, perhaps because they knew, like, hey, they're going to put an end to this policy and i got to meet my quota. You know, nobody really knows. Um, but at least for now, it looks like Michael Moore is putting the brakes on random stops, and random stops are in, like, some big fucking scare quotes. Yeah, exactly. So in the wake of this L.A. Times story that we discussed last week about the disproportionate searches of Hispanic and black folks across the city, the LAPD's elite metropolitan division will dramatically be cutting back on pulling over quote-unquote random vehicles. Uh, So the real question here is, why was this even a policy to begin with? I mean, a random traffic stop without cause is uh, pretty clearly unconstitutional to my understanding. So what what gives with all this? Um, LAPD chief, it gets better because uh, not only is this random, probably very unconstitutional, uh, also totally useless. Uh, LAPD chief Michael Moore told the LA Times that, quote, Metro's Metro's vehicle stops have not proven effective, netting about one arrest for every 100 cars stopped, while coming at a tremendous cost to innocent drivers who felt they were being racially profiled, end quote. Really? Really, Michael Moore? They just felt like they were being racially profiled? Because it looks like they were being racially profiled if you look at the statistics of how all this works out. And... I mean, I am I'm at a complete loss for words of what the hell they were doing continuing this policy when they had a one in 100 chance of it being, uh, you know, of that traffic stop resulting in an arrest. They're pulling over 99 cars with nothing. Well, and I think the thing that it. I think the thing that amazed me uh, more was that there were 200 officers that were tasked to this. 200 officers whose job it was to just harass people in cars in certain neighborhoods. Because, like, 
I know that they're not randomly stopping cars in like Beverly Hills. I know they're not <laughs> randomly stopping well, cars LAPD in like West LA, LA or Beverly Wood or any of the nice neighborhoods around LA. Uh, like they're not doing that. You know, there was a specific part of the of the city of Los Angeles where they were harassing drivers who looked a certain way and they had a lot of cops whose job that was. And so now like what are they going to do with these cops? Like that's my other question is like we now have 200 cops who now who need to be retasked. Uh, what are what kind of evil are they going to put them Ugh. to? I have a feeling that they're probably going to ramp up harassment of people who are you know living without permanent shelter because low hanging fruit. Yeah. Um, and ultimately, like LAPD decides their effectiveness based on like how many tickets an officer can write and how many arrests an officer can make. And like it, ah, it, the the whole like focus on predictive policing and comp stat and all of this other like bullshit managerial stuff that goes into our modern policing is really just, you know, driving a bigger and bigger wedge between the forces that are supposed to provide security and safety to a community and the people who, you know, legitimately live in fear of these thugs with with guns. Yeah, so uh, fun fact, the rank-and-file cops are unsurprisingly not pleased with this change of tactics. Uh, according to a written statement from the board of directors of the Los Angeles Police Protective League, which is the union of the cops, quote, the chief's decision to buckle to the demands of anti-police groups like the ACLU, <laughs> who have zero interest in ensuring criminals are arrested, <laughs> sorry, uh, is deeply disappointing. No, I mean, just just <laughs> absolutely laugh at it. Like, you know, like, and that's the, that's the thing is like the ACLU is like, hey, let's jail killer cops. And the cops are like, they have no interest in jailing criminals. And it's like, ah, yes, huh. exactly. Really? They continue, we do not support this reckless gamble that will lead to the further victimization of people of color by criminals and gang members. Oh, you mean like the gang members in the fucking sheriff's department? God, I'm just, this, I'm seething with rage right now. And I, whoo, yeah, uh, good job, LA Police Protective League. You guys have no idea what you're talking about and uh, the ACLU exists to protect the yeah. civil liberties of Americans. They even protect you know people who I don't think that they necessarily should be protecting with the free speech stuff sometimes. But you know what? Yep. They are out there trying to make the world a better place. Uh, the cops that are supporting these kind of random searches are absolutely fucking not making the world a better place. They are victimizing people. 99 innocent people being stopped for every one that you arrest is absurd. And for the LA Police Protective Union League, the cop unions, I'm going to stumble over their name every once in a while. For them to be taking umbrage at this is just like, what the fuck is going on? What? I mean, where? Cop, uh, cop unions aren't unions. <sighs> yeah. So uh, that's fun. Uh, yeah. They need to so just let's, cut yeah, the LAPD budget, like uh, all, all of it. Just take away their money. Yeah. Just take it away. They clearly don't yep. have anything productive to be doing if they're going to be stopping 99 cars for every one arrest that they're going to be making doing this. Metro Division needs to be completely overhauled. They, they just, they've got way more money than they know what to do with. They're just paying all this overtime. Uh, and they just keep shooting people, take away their budget, take away their guns. Yep. So let's, uh, 
Speaking of, you know, the L.A. Police Protective League uh, complaining about people who don't want to see criminals in jail, uh, we have seen a certain segment of crime jumping, like, very dramatically in the last year or so. And, in fact, we over at Knock.LA have done some reporting on it, uh, earning the ire of... Several very angry, terrible people up in the valley yep. uh, because of their their participation in violent vigilante groups on Facebook. Uh, we've also seen not a lot of arrests coming out of crimes against people who are unhoused. So, you know, I'm wondering when L.A. Police Protective League's, uh, you know, money is going to get where their mouth is about arresting criminals. So let's talk about this uptick in crime against people who are living without permanent shelter. And this is coming out of an article in LA Magazine uh, that was published last week that is a really, like, it's just such a soul-crushing read, but, like, so vitally important if you live in the city. Yeah, so as you said, in the recent months, there's been a a just shocking rise in the number of crimes that are being committed against our unhoused neighbors in, in the city, the county, all over in, in New York as well. Like this is becoming a, a, a national situation. Um, but specifically here in LA on October 6th, uh, in Echo Park, someone threw an explosive device over at, at, at an encampment, burning a hole in a tent and traumatizing the folks in the area. LA magazine highlighted it at the start of this article, uh, which we are going to highly recommend that y'all read. Uh, and they actually, uh, the, this incident in particular was was first highlighted by Streetwatch LA, uh, which you know is an out uh, an outgrowth of uh, the work that uh, LA Can and DSA Los Angeles is uh, housing and uh, homelessness committee have been doing, trying to highlight the fact that our unhoused neighbors have been victimized by the power structures within the city with LA sanitation, the way that they've been. Uh, policing these encampments and, and seizing people's property. That's what this was all set up. So we've been, uh, Streetwatch LA has been developing these kind of relationships and they were the first ones to be hearing about this story. Uh, and I mean, I don't normally re- want to read just four paragraphs in a row from somebody's article, but Zoe Matthew did an absolutely fantastic job of capturing this incident. And it's so important yeah. that I really just want to share it with you all verbatim. So let's just dive straight in. Quote, On a Sunday earlier this month, Freddie G was dozing off with a book in his Echo Park tent when he was startled by the sound of a large vehicle's engine revving up and speeding away. Seconds later, there was an ear-shattering boom. As smoke swirled around him, Freddie, who has been homeless in the area for about four months and asked to be referred to by his first name, remembers, quote, drifting between shock and reality, end quote, as he checked to make sure his two cats, Salem and Stranger Trouble, were okay. Luckily, they'd pretty much been shielded from the explosion, he says. They were looking at me like, are you okay, Dad? Because I was beyond it. Freddie, too, was unscathed, though the sound was so loud that he says employees from surrounding establishments rushed to his aid. Eventually, the police arrived and determined that the tent had been hit by a firecracker. They found no evidence from witnesses or security camera in the area that could help identify a suspect, and, according to a source of the LAPD, the incident is being considered an act of vandalism. Freddie, who believes he was hit by something... Yeah, no, we'll get into that. Freddie, who believes he was hit by something powerful like an M80, says he doesn't have any idea who is responsible, but he strongly suspects that the act was meant to intimidate him. After some consideration, though, he has decided against relocating his tent. That would mean they won. Quote, this is basically a form of terrorism. It's a hate crime, he says. I'm not about to fold to these people, end quote. So, yeah, uh, LAPD, that is... That is not vandalism. That is assault. 
It is assault. It is intimidation. It is, you know, literally then, a threat of like violence. one of those devices Come can on. seriously maim you. Like I, I've seen that happen before. Like one of those devices can cost you the better part of your hand, um, if not kill you. If it if it you know lands next to your head, like, and it, it just shows where LAPD's like. Um, priorities are that they're classifying that as vandalism and not as like assault with a deadly weapon um not as something more serious whereas like even if they caught the guy uh the district attorney probably isn't going to be interested in prosecuting him to the fullest extent of the law for vandalizing a tent it's just unbelievable this this is you know clearly this is a situation of assault and the fact that they're going to consider it to be an act of vandalism because fortunately nobody was hurt like that's absurd so like this story is just, it's shocking and it's terrifying, uh, but it's altogether not unexpected. Just last month, you know, we had this fire up in Eagle Rock where two men in their 20s, one of them being the son of the president of the local chamber of commerce, which is worth pointing out every single time we talk about this, uh, they are alleged to have uh, started a blaze that was meant to drive out people at an encampment. We saw earlier in, I believe it was in August, uh, a, a resident on Skid Row who was literally burned alive uh, in an incident of uh, of murder where the, he was targeted and we, we still don't know exactly why he was targeted but you know this is this has been happening over and over again people have been uh, assaulted with bats uh, and and killed people there's been at least one other person who they found a burned uh, a body burned in a burned out car. Uh, up in the valley. And then uh, the folks over at K-Town for All have been pointing out some instances where up in Chatsworth, uh, a, a local RV uh, encampment was literally shot at where the people in the area decided to take the vigilantism that we, you know, we, we discussed in that article uh, and and the these vigilante groups. Like, they that vigilantism is going strong up there, somebody decided to actually shoot out the window in an RV, and uh, the bullet ended up hitting one of the local businesses. And then, uh, from what I had heard recently, yep. the police are trying to get the RVs to move because they're saying that those RVs are bringing the crime to the area because some local vigilante fuckhead decided to shoot at them. It's just... Like, what the hell is going on with all this? And so, yeah, we uh, highly recommend that y'all check out this story from Zoe Matthews. Uh, it's terrifying, but it's important for people to be keeping aware of what is going on here. And if LAPD wants to actually do something meaningful to cut down on crime, how about they start looking into actually protecting our most vulnerable populations in this city and do something about this shit? Well, and I think one like a, a kind of fun note to end on before we move to the reading group is, um, uh, I believe Michael Saltz, oh yeah, the, uh, attorney for Fern Peskin White, who sent the cease and desist letter to uh, L.A. Magazine demanding that they not publish the screen caps of the Facebook groups uh, that Fern Peskin White runs. Uh, Turns out he was lying about his credentials. He listed himself as having done work with the uh, office of the L.A. City Attorney, uh, specifically in, uh, I, I believe, uh, drug prevention oh, or yeah. narcotics, yeah, something yeah. like that. And it turns out that the L.A. City Attorney's office has no record of him <laughs> ever working with them. 
And this is like an issue. This is interesting for a number of reasons. Like, you know, in most professional contexts, like it's frowned upon to lie about what kind of work you've done. Like, you know, as a video editor, if I claim like I worked on a movie that I didn't actually work on, like people are kind of like, tut tut, you shouldn't do that. But I don't have to pass the bar and I don't have to prove that I'm an ethically sound person to keep my rating as a video editor, whereas like to stay in good standing as an attorney in the state of California, you have to be ethically sound. Like you're not allowed to lie about that stuff as an attorney. And so far I haven't heard that like the bar of the state of California is looking into Michael Saltz. There's no indication that they really care. But I think this is just like another sign of the times where we where we're having these people who want to cosplay as police officers and cosplay as the government um, and think they can get away with it because like Quite frankly, they can. You know, SLO Dents is back oh, yeah. in the violent Facebook groups, even though he was told not to do that. And Michael Moore doesn't seem to be cracking down yep. on that. So, this is just going to take a lot more sunshine to disinfect this. Uh, but we're going to keep you apprised of this, if for no other reason than like, it's such a ridiculous comedy of errors. Like, these people are so bad at what they do. Like, they're just so freaking yep. terrible. Like, I know people say, you know, if you can be the Batman, be Batman. But like. <laughs> they mean like the good Batman, not like the Scooby Doo like after school special like jokey Batman. Anyways, yep. let's uh let's go ahead and uh roll into this reading series because we haven't done one of these in a while. And I, I caught this article in Business Insider uh that just really uh, it just angered me so. Um so we're gonna talk about this one that talks about what you need to do to be able to retire at a reasonable age. And uh spoiler alert, uh being wealthy is pretty much the name of the game if you want to retire securely. So uh this article, and don't worry, I'll put the the link mm -hmm. in the description so you can read it for yourself. Um but this article by uh, Hillary Hoffauer, uh entitled A 36-year-old New York lawyer who makes two hundred and seventy thousand dollars says he lives off rice and beans so he can save seventy percent of his salary. He's part of a growing movement of pinching pennies to retire early, which I guess they're stealing from the Michael Kohlhaas like school of headlines, because that is that's a hell of a long headline. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. But moving into the body of the article, <laughs> uh, some people will do anything to escape the rat race. Just ask Daniel, 36, a Manhattan corporate lawyer earning $270,000 a year who told Susie Weiss of the New York Post that he lives in New Jersey to avoid city taxes, lives on rice and beans, owns one patched-together suit per workday for week... Uh, sorry, per weekday for work, and layers up during the winter instead of turning the heat on. Also, he can save 70% of his salary and retire early. So a couple of things are going on here. One, the guy owns five suits. Um, you know, that they kind of made that sentence seem like he only owns one suit, like the way they phrased it. But in fact, he just owns five suits um, that I'm going to best guess aren't like terribly bad suits. You know, I don't think he's going to Kohl's like Bernie is. The other thing is, also <laughs> oh, he can save 70% of his salary and retire early. And what that part is saying to me is that this guy doesn't have medical debt or school yep. debt. You know, that he's allowed to save that much even though he's making $270,000 a year, which like, that's a lot of freaking money. Um, in New York, it's less so than many parts of this country, but that's still a ton of money. So figure that he's saving around $200,000 a year. Yeah. yeah, and that's that's a pretty nice cushion, but it's also one where like you can only do that if you're not grappling with a chronic illness, if you don't have student loan debt that you're paying off, if like everything in your life has gone pretty well. And also if you're willing to be a corporate lawyer, like they never kind of go into what kind of corporate law he's doing. And maybe it's just like innocuous 
paper pushing and innocuous like transactional law where he's like checking contracts and stuff but like he's not getting paid $270,000 because like he's teaching kids to read or housing the homeless or feeding the hungry he's getting paid $270,000 a year to make sure that a wealthy yep. corporation stays wealthy so quote uh, on to the next paragraph. Quote, it's working. He's saved more than $400,000 and is set to retire in three years. Uh, okay. Uh, I don't <laughs> think that gonna, that math adds up. And he must it. have another... <laughs> yeah, he must have another source of wealth because $400,000 is not enough to retire mm. on at the age of 40. Um, also, if he's saving 70% of his salary and he's only saved up 70... Or he's only saved up $200,000... How long has he been doing this? Because um, by my count, that's for two years he's been living on rice and mm -hmm. beans. Um, but they make it seem like more. So I'm super like, it, yeah. I'm super confused on how this, this math is working out. Well. Uh, quote, other six-figure earners Weiss talked to have similar goals and are pulling out all the stops to reach them, from banning buying drinks out to wearing shoes that are falling apart. <laughs> um, <laughs> welcome to the life of 90% of America. Jesus Christ. I don't even like I don't even know what to say about that one. Like, you know, pre-gaming didn't come around because people like didn't like drinking at bars. It, it came around because people couldn't afford to buy drinks at bars because they were all priced for people who were making $270,000 a year. Oh, <sighs> all right, next one. Quote, they all hope to join the financial independence retire early movement that was popularized when Your Money or Your Life was published 20 years ago. It's nothing new, but more millennials are becoming interested in the community, according to Weiss. So this article isn't really an article as much as it's a pitch for a book and a pretty weak <laughs> one at that. Uh, also, I didn't realize that, like you know, wanting to retire at a reasonable age and, like, enjoy your life with some sort of a movement rather than just, like, a basic human desire. Like, this is more of the kind of, you know, market moving in to take over something that should just be reasonable. Like, you shouldn't have to work until you die. Funny like, that, that shouldn't be everyone's life. Um, but it's also, like, it's weird that they're putting this whole, like, book pitch into this article, but framing the article as though it's about, like, some very thrifty Not millennial who though. only happens to be making, you know, more than a quarter million dollars a year. Next paragraph. Quote, being content with less and refusing to succumb to lifestyle inflation are the tickets to staying on track to retire early. J.P. Livingston, who runs a personal finance blog called The Money Habit, built a nest egg of more than $2 million before retiring at 28. Livingston worked in Manhattan's finance industry and earned $100,000 in her first post-grad job, she previously told Business wow. Insider. Okay. Wow. Yeah, I mean, like, so basically you, you figured out that the secret to retiring early is to be wealthy uh, and then to also work in an industry where you exponentially increase your wealth. Um, I don't really know what to say about that. Again, like, it seems like the, the guidance being given here is, like, just be born rich. Yeah. If you want to live not, like not a rich exactly person, a helpful, uh, not exactly a helpful guide to being able to retire early, but it is pretty, pretty yeah, absurd. Seeing as the average millennial salary, like straight out of school, is about thirty five thousand dollars a year, um, I got questions about how everyone's yeah. supposed to go out there and earn a hundred thousand dollars in their first post grad job. <laughs> like, let's not forget, like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez graduated with a BA in economics and then went to bartending because that was the best, most stable job she could yep. find until she got elected to Congress. So, I'd also like to know about J.P. Livingston's like 
family before that. Like, what do her parents do? What kind of connections did she have where she was able to get, um, you know, that kind of, like, job straight out of the gate? Uh, it's kind of one of the most ridiculous things that I've read in a long while. And hold on, I just clicked on the article about Livingston, and I'm kind of skimming through it to see if it says anything interesting here. Da, 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 da. Nope, just the same old bullshit. And it basically <laughs> just says live like a poor person. You know, like... Uh, so, uh, the next paragraph, the next paragraph, quote, but determined to retire early, she, this is Livingston, tucked away 70% of her take-home pay. In an effort to be more frugal, she bought furniture from Craigslist and chose a living situation more modest than one she could have afforded, with a roommate in a three-floor walk-up on the Upper East Side for $1,050 a month. Reasonable rent in New Yorkers' eyes. Um... Ye okay, so she had a roommate, which most people in their 20s have. This is not, like, groundbreaking. Yeah. Uh, buying furniture off of Craigslist, yep. uh, yeah, also, wow, amazing. I can't believe she's the first person who ever thought to buy furniture off of Craigslist. <laughs> that's, that's insane. Um, and also, again, like, it's kind of amazing that she was able to tuck away 70% of her take-home pay because, again, she doesn't have student loan debt. She doesn't have any massive medical debt. She doesn't have a chronic illness that she's trying to manage. Like, again, you have to be incredibly privileged and fortunate to be able to tuck away 70% of what you're making. You also have to be able to be making a shit ton of money. Yeah. If you're making the average millennial salary of $35,000 a year and you're paying $1,050 a month in, in rent, so you're paying $12,600 a year, that means out of your $35,000, you have like $23,000 left. And that's like you, regular yeah. food expenses, clothing, uh, just commuting to work, like all of that normal stuff. Also, just like wanting to be mm -hmm. a human, like somehow you're not allowed to enjoy your life or your friends until you've made a certain amount of money, like this bourgeois expectation that in order to enjoy your life, you have to have money. And if you don't have money, you must miserably suffer. Um, I don't know. I'm just flashing back to like that scene of the Titanic where it shows like all the poor Irish people dancing and having a grand old time, and then they all drown because they're punished for being poor. And I feel like that's kind of the the you know vision yep. of society the Business Insider is fully embracing. Here. I mean, it is Business Insider, so. Um not that surprising. <laughs> Quote, even those not working in traditional high-salaried careers make do with a frugal lifestyle. Consider Joe and Allie Ol Olson, who quit their job as public school teachers in their early 30s to retire with $1 million whoa, in the bank. Whoa, whoa, They saved 70% of their whoa, income, whoa, whoa. hold on, and lived in a 400-square-foot home, keeping their annual expenses to about $20,000, Business Insider previously reported. Now, I actually read this article earlier, and I was, I was complaining to you about this before we started recording, Chris, but this is a couple who bought 17 houses. Jesus. That's how they retired early, is they own 17 houses as rental properties. Now, nowhere in the article does it say where they got the capital or the credit to buy and flip 17 houses. Wow. Doesn't say. Doesn't say how they managed to go through school without accruing any student That's loan insane. debt. Doesn't say how they managed to pay their expenses through school. Doesn't manage, doesn't explain how they managed to like save money into their early 30s or why living in a 400 square foot home is like a huge sacrifice on their part. Like there's two of them. They don't have a family. How much effing land do they need? Ugh. More to the point, like, at one point, uh, Joe has a quote in that article where he says, you know, it, when you realize you just don't need more, then you're happy with what you've got. And you're like, asshole, you own 17 homes. You own 17 homes. What are you talking about? You don't need more. You own 17 homes. I mean... 
So yeah, again, like the lesson here is be wealthy or you know get fucked. Uh, so onto their next onto the next header as we kind of like round towards the end of this ridiculous article. So the header of this section is frugality is the key to building oh, wealth. Yeah, Quote, regardless sure. of early retirement goals, frugality is the key to building wealth. Look no further than Warren Buffett, who still <laughs> lives in a modest home in Omaha, Omaha, Nebraska. He bought for $276,700 in today's dollars. Or Richard Branson, uh, who is famously frugal when it comes to buying luxury items. He owns a fucking spaceship! Richard Branson owns a spaceship. What frugality are you talking about? Holy shit. And as far as Warren, Warren Buffett being frugal, here's a fun fact. So uh, you Hit know me. why Warren Buffett's company is called Berkshire Hathaway? No, I don't. So the first company that Warren Buffett ever built was an industrial manufacturer called Berkshire Hathaway. It went out of business, costing several hundred people their jobs. But Warren Buffett, to remind himself that he was not infallible, named his new company that is worth billions of dollars Berkshire Hathaway. So let, let that be a lesson to you. Warren Buffett learned a life lesson. Other people lost their livelihoods. And we're supposed to hold Warren effing Buffett, the billionaire, up as like the good guy in the situation. Oh, my Buddha. I, I'm about to put my fist through yeah, my monitor. This made me so angry. <laughs> Jeez. Duh. I'm too broke to afford a new computer, <laughs> no. Chris. I can't. <laughs> All right. Holy Moving on to the last shit. three paragraphs here. Quote, frugal lifestyles help millionaires get rich in the first no, place, according no, to Sarah no, Stanley That's Fowler. not how it works. That's not how it works. <laughs> oh, God damn it. <laughs> the director of research oh. for the Affluent Market Institute. I don't even, yeah, there's a place called the Affluent Market <laughs> Institute, and they pay people... <laughs> Oh God! She's also an author of quote the next millionaire next door what? the enduring enduring strategies for building wealth in which she surveyed more than six hundred millionaires in America. Uh, she studied the characteristics yeah. most predictive of net worth and found that six behaviors, really? which she called wealth factors, were related to net worth potential, regardless of age or wait, income. Wait, wait. One of those is frugality, no, no, no. a commitment to saving, spending I, less, and sticking no, to no, a no. budget. No, no, no. One of those is your fucking zip code. Your zip code has a hell of a lot yep. more to do with whether or not you end up being a millionaire than whether or not you're fucking frugal. What the shit? And you're yeah, right. That also, I mean, that also yep. comes with. The and they also said, I like how she's like, regardless of age or income. Um, yeah, because like race and also uh. like your material wealth before income. Because like, if you were oh, yeah, born yeah. into a wealthy family, you don't make Good a lot point. of income necessarily. You have like a lot of passive income. You have a lot of assets sitting around. So like, your income can look like nothing, but you can be worth a lot of money. I'm. You know, that's, that's, why, that's how people are able to retire is they don't have income anymore. They just have a lot of assets. So <laughs> why are you, you know, doing this to me? As long as you me. don't pay attention to the most, <laughs> as long as you don't pay attention to the most important things in the equation, it's real simple, Chris. <laughs> like as long as you ignore all of those important factors. <laughs> all right. Last quote here. Oh, and no. this, is, this is from Miss, uh, Miss uh, Sarah Stanley Fallow. Quote, spending above your means, spending instead of saving for retirement, spending in anticipation of becoming wealthy makes you a slave to the paycheck, even with a stellar level of income, she wrote. <sighs> I mean, she's got the right word, but it's, you're a waste. Like, I don't know. Like, I, I could just, like, right now, I could just go, like, 
surf over to TMZ and find some pictures of the Kardashians <laughs> on a yacht somewhere. <laughs> and I don't think that's making them less wealthy. No. I don't think that's how wealth in this country works. I think that, you know, like, we have so ossified the class stratifications that you are actually more likely to stay wealthy if you are born wealthy than you are to move up if you're born from moderate means. Like, for the boomer generation, you were 90% more likely, or you had a 90% 90 chance of out-earning your parents in your lifetime. For millennials, less than 40%. The American dream. That didn't happen by accident. The velocity of money matters. And what we see here is like the people who are being praised here, the people who are like, hey, look at how frugal this guy is, even though he makes all this money and could be like balling it up in the strip club, is like, oh, and I got to say, like the cover photo for this article is this dude wearing like a very nice outfit and a very nice wristwatch uh, standing in front of a bunch of canned foods in the grocery store. And I think that says a lot, you know, that like, hey, he could be eating like fresh farm to table food, but he's going to go ahead and eat like a poor. But what we see is the people who are, are, you know, benefiting and able to like make their living this way are people who are fundamentally stopping the velocity of money. They're people who are not spending their money in the consumer economy. They're not people who are spreading assets and value through the economy. They're people who have already got an insane amount of wealth that they can afford to go to a really good college go to a really good law school, then get hired into a really good job as a corporate lawyer, which, like, that doesn't happen. Like, you don't go to, like, Hollywood upstairs law school and then end up a corporate lawyer. Like, you already have to have means to reach that level of professional, like, of the professional career. So we're taking white people who already have money and praising them for getting more money. Yeah. This is the same kind of browbeating, like, hey, just don't be poor mentality we see over and over and over again. It's like bootstrapping bullshit that you can save your way into wealth, assuming that nothing bad happens. Like, fuck, if you become a type 1 diabetic, well, you're pretty fucked. Like, it's hard to save money when your insulin costs you $1,500 a month. Let's hope you don't get hit by a car crossing the street because, shit, paying a quarter million dollars worth of medical bills is going to make it really hard for you to save the money you need for retirement. It also, like, none of these articles talk about the material wealth that any of these people had beforehand. Like, every single one of these articles should come with a financial disclosure of how much money their parents and grandparents were worth because that's where the rubber hits the road. That's where you're able to say, hey, I'm going to spend seven years of my life in school earning a professional degree where I don't have to be making money in order to make a lot more money later in life. They don't talk about that. Like these two public school teachers, good for them being public school teachers, but were they like Teach for America public school teachers? Like what did that mean exactly? Where did they go to school? How did they pay for that education? None of that stuff is ever disclosed. And that is a huge gaping problem in here where they're just trying to sell you these like get rich quick scheme books, which is why they rep two authors and a woman who works for the Affluent Market Institute. I still, how does that exist? How, Chris? Like, how? How does that exist? Because rich people have too much money. God fucking damn it. Oh, my God. All right. I got to move on. Like, I've got to, like, I'm going to, like, an alumni event for, like, my fancy fucking private school tomorrow, and I've got to wear, I I was debating whether or not I should wear my Hunt the Rich (laughs) t-shirt that I just got. But I feel like if I did that, I would be asked a lot of questions that are already answered by the shirt, and I'd just rather avoid that. 
So let's go ahead and move on to what's happening next week. Uh, the the first thing I want to talk about uh, that's happening is at Aliso Canyon, uh, we are having the fourth anniversary of the gas leak. So the press conference and rally is going to be starting at 8 a.m., going to 11 a.m., and it's going to be at 12801 Tampa Avenue which is in Porter Ranch, which basically that is where the street ends. Like you're on a public street and then you get to a guardhouse and it's no longer a public street because that is the private access up to Aliso Canyon, the gas-filled exploding mountain that just caught on fire. So please show up. Please help bring some public attention and scrutiny to this. Uh, we really need to pressure Ga- Gavin Newsom and Eric Garcetti and the rest of the city council to shut Aliso Canyon Absolutely. down because it's a danger to the community. It's a danger to all of us. It's an incredibly inefficient way to be dealing with this problem. And like when you go up there, just pay attention to how things smell because you will smell the gas. Uh, in the air. You might you be will, smelling more charcoal on an intuitive point, level. Yeah. Well, you will, on an intuitive level, know, like, this is not safe for humanity. We've had uh, door-knocking canvases up there that we've had to call off because people started getting sick and showed all of the signs of exposure to natural gas and benzene in the air. This is not safe. People are being harmed right now, and we can fix this. So, again, Wednesday, October 23rd, 8 to 11 a.m., Aliso Canyon Gas Storage Facility, be there for sure uh also uh on wednesday next week as always black lives matter is going to be hosting a weekly vigil uh this one as we mentioned earlier is the two-year anniversary so it's a big deal please 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 show up show your support uh 211 west temple downtown 4 to 6 p.m uh in front of the hall of injustice it is a an incredibly uh cathartic and deeply emotional event uh highly recommend that everyone who can does come by. It's a it's it's an experience that you should at least see once. Uh, and if you're going to only be able to make it once, come to this one. It's it's a big deal. Um, also, this week we're going to be having some more Latu meetings happening as always on Wednesday, October 23rd. We've got the Northeast Local meeting happening from seven to nine at Avenue 50 Studio as always, 131 North Avenue 50 90042. And then on Thursday, the Latu's got three of their locals. The North. Hollywood Local is going to be meeting from 6.30 to 9 at 57.30 Cahuenga Boulevard in North Hollywood, 91601. The Eastside Local meeting is going to be happening from 6.30 to 8.30, same day, 346 South Gless Street, 90033. And the South LA Local meets from 6.30 to 9 at the Southern California Library, 6120 South Vermont Avenue, 90044. And... And as always, uh, Ground Game meets every Thursday from 7.30 to 9 p.m., 5617 Hollywood Boulevard, just a couple of blocks from the Western Hollywood Red Line Metro Station. Uh, come on out. Say hi. It's fun. And uh, yeah, that's, that's all I've got on the calendar right now. So as always, if y'all have any events that you want us to publicize, take part in, or generally be made aware of, Send us a message through the Ground Game LA Facebook page or send an email over to podcast at groundgamela.org. Of course, you can follow us on Twitter at Ground Game LA, at Bushido Squirrel, at Christopher Roth, on Instagram over at, at Ground Game LA, and of course, like and follow the Ground Game LA Facebook page for all of our live streamed content from actions around the city, as well as links from Knock. And of course, you can read stories from our comrades and sometimes the two of us dabbling a little bit over at Knock.LA. If you'd like to read the sources that we're citing or quoting for yourself, check out the list of articles cited in the episode description over on SoundCloud, 
uh, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to us rant and rave about local politics. Thanks for tuning in, and uh, have a safe and productive week, folks. It's getting crazy out there, and uh, yeah, <laughs> don't know what else to say right now. I do want to say as the for the sign-off, uh, I want to do a small remembrance of Elijah Cummings, who was a fierce advocate for civil rights and for justice in America. Um, I wanted to leave us on a quote of his that I think says a lot about a proper way to lead your life. Quote, my life is based on pain, passion, and purpose. Thank you all very much this week. Be safe.